This is exactly right. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Traeger. And I'm your other host, Kara Clank. And we talk SVU episodes, true crime. And we're still holding off on guests, even though the writer's strike has been resolved and we feel the SAG strike, hopefully by the time this episode even comes out, will be resolved. I mean, uh, fingers crossed. And um, we can get back to having some guests soon. They just rejected an offer. I wonder what it was. It's like the writers got everything, like, just do the same. What are they doing? Yeah. I wonder if it just has, like, I feel like the the AI thing with writing is one thing, but the AI thing with, like, scanning people's likenesses and, like, reusing it. Like, I just saw an article yesterday that there's some insurance ad or something with Tom Hanks in it, and he's like, that's not me. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, they're, they're they're just, to me, with actors, there's more of an opportunity for AI to be, like, abusive than even with writers. So maybe that's what they're holding out on. I'm not confused why the actors are holding out. I'm confused why the studios aren't just giving in. Like, yeah. <laughs> do, uh, we, like, they really, the writers won. They got what they wanted. Yeah. What makes them think the actors are not going to do that too? Like, that's my thing. Like, you can't scan a person's face. Yeah. And keep it forever <laughs> for one fee. For $150. Like, like I, that's not even, this isn't even, this is wild behavior. You can't scan a face and keep it. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, this isn't the movie <laughs> The Island. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you can't do it. Um, Listen, I have huge news. What's the news? So I, uh, my friend's in town from London, and uh, so I picked her up from the beach. From the beach, I picked her up from the airport. And usually, when I pick up visitors from the airport, I go straight to the beach, and that's what we did. Then we went to the Santa Monica Pier. I played whack a mole against three people. I won. Uh, I won. <laughs> I won a squash mallow. It's like I want this prize, and it's. It's like a blueberry cupcake with a face on it. It's so fucking cute. And I jumped up and down so hard. And I, I, the the other people didn't know who they were up against in terms of whack-a-mole. 
but it was it, it felt uh very important. Hold on, let me Wait, show I you. I want to see it. Oh my god. Uh, that it's is very cute. cute. Very cute. It was so cute. We'll oh, post it. God. We'll post it in the stories. <laughs> yeah, Ferris wheel. You know, sometimes a tourist attraction is nice. <laughs> so the people huge, always No, so the huge news is the squash mallow. Yeah. Correct. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you top that, Kara? No, no, I don't have any good. I don't have any good, uh, good, good stuff to top that, unfortunately. But we do have uh, news. If you guys um, have been living under a rock and truly skipping every intro we've ever discussed, we are on tour. Yes, thank you. It is the seventeenth of October today when this episode goes live, which means it's not too late for you to catch us in Cleveland tomorrow. We are back at Hilarities. We were there last year. Listen, I'll be the first to admit that last year we did an episode in Cleveland that was a bit of a bummer, okay? It did start with two dead people and a dead child lying in the forest together, posed like lying down together like they were having a little camping trip, but they were dead. We don't love that. We are coming back with a hot new episode to Cleveland. You're gonna love it. It's gonna be fun, much more fun and flirty than the last episode. And um, it's going to be great. So come see us at Hilarities. Then on Thursday, we are in Boston. We are playing the Wilbur. It's the biggest venue we've ever played. Grab a friend. Please come out and see us. We we really don't want to, you know, flop at the at the Wilbur with like, you know, not, not too many people. So we'd love to see you. After Boston, we're in Toronto on the 24th, Detroit on the 25th, Pittsburgh on the 26th. And then Check that'smessuplive.com for our Midwest states, uh, Salt Lake, Sacramento, New York. Our first show has sold out. We are doing a second show. We're adding a late show. Come see us at City Winery in New York and then closing the tour out in Philly um, in December. So yeah, we really want to see you guys. We love you. And Lisa's doing some stand-up as well. Yeah, I'm out there. I'm out there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> check her Instagram. Check the Glitter Cheese Instagram for her shows. Um, and yeah, that's that for now. Uh, what else is going on besides the amazing squash mallow? Oh, I am um, booking like, I have like free time. So I'm booking some hotels in New York and the hotels, like there was even one thing that said like, sorry, our prices are higher. It's fall. People are really coming here in fall. And it makes sense. Fall in New York is gorgeous. Yeah. But I didn't realize that the prices skyrocket so much for the fall. I just did, I didn't either. I just did this podcast where the host asked me, what's a movie that if you could, you would like jump in and out of it? Like you could like go to like different scenes in the movie. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I ended up choosing When Harry Met Sally because I would love to go to New York during all these different times. Like there's like fall in New York. They're in summer in New York. They're in like, they're kind of like 80s New York, but maybe they start in 70s New York. So uh, I- that's what I chose. I always think of Fall in New York. I think of the cover of When Harry Met Sally. Wow. I don't know. I thought, I, what movie would I want to haunt? I know. So, okay. It's a hard the first question. Thing, the first thing that came to mind was Jumanji, which is insane. <laughs> you want to like run from animals. <laughs> so that's wrong. Then once you started talking New York, I was like, oh, I wonder what she's going to say. And so then I thought Big Business because the Plaza Hotel. <laughs> so that would be fun. And then the fashion is so cool. But I like where you're thinking, like, you could see every season. So what would I like to do? Maybe we bought a zoo. I like animals. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. 
Fucking hang out with Matt Damon. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Or do I pick cartoon? (laughs) Or do I pick inside out and go to, you know, inside of a brain of a child? I don't know. I don't think you would like that. (laughs) I don't think you would like that. What do all the things inside the head do when the girl hits puberty and starts, you know, getting fingered out and about? I feel like, um, I feel like. Does Joy get jump up and down or does she (laughs) close her eyes? What does Joy do? Great question. I was going to say, I feel like disgust takes the wheel. Like she starts driving the whole thing. And Joy is kind of like, I'm back here, but like kind of really only for like a couple of things. But definitely a fingering. I bet Joy does have a good time. Um, That (laughs) movie was good. Funny to think about. Yeah. I love that. It should be, um, what is it called? Mandatory viewing. Yes. Rosie's outside right now watching the Lego movie. By the way, Rosie's home from school, everybody. So if I am... Uh, you know she's going to come interrupted. for string cheese. Yeah, if I'm interrupted during this recording, it's because she's like, knock, knock, knock. Ding dong. Um, <laughs> yeah. that, you did a good impression of her. That is how she kind of sounds. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so it's like, cute. I hope she comes in. My friend from another country is out and about. Um, she went for a walk to be respectful, but in my head, I was like, "You sh-. her accent's insane. <laughs> like, I have to acclimate to it. She's a Geordie, for those who know what that means. Um, she's from Newcastle. And so, like, she just sounds... Like, it takes me a couple days to figure her out. Like, yesterday, I kept having to be like, wait, what was that? She's like, ugh. <laughs> you know, you, she's like, you're not yeah, used you to have to get. You have to get acclimated for sure. I mean, I'm listening to this podcast right now that, you know, is obviously about child murder, sadly. Um, but, like, it takes place in, like, the northeast of England, like, Sunderland or something like that. And it's like, everybody's talking a lot. You know, like, I cannot even understand what a lot of people are saying. Like, the, it's like an English accent I've never heard before. So I'm really like, I like, I like, I'm always like, I hope the host is going to summarize after this interview because I don't know what this person is saying. But I love it. I can't wait to meet your friend because I love British accents. But I used to have a thing where I was like Meredith Marks. And if I talked to somebody from a foreign country for like a little bit, I would just start talking in their accent. I think that's normal. I really yeah. think that's normal behavior. I think it's like, they say it's an empathy thing too. Yeah. And it's you like, know. I also just think the accents are cool like I and sound pretty. And I'm like, oh, can I talk like that? Like, I don't know. No, Probably. I'm actually embarrassing. When I get to London, I'll say mate. I'll say flat. It's <laughs> not It's not good. It's not good. But I, I will just start talking. <laughs> like, I belong yeah. there. Let's it's hard to not load to. load of crisps. Yeah. But it's so wild because when people come to America, they really keep their acts like, oh, uh, that's different. Like, I don't feel that people that come from other places suddenly start talking more American. Well, I remember always asking, like, my babysitters that were from other countries, like New Zealand or Ireland or whatever, I'd be like, do an American accent. And they'd always be like, yeah, okay. Like, they would do, like, Valley Girl. That I like, like, but that's them. But that's them pretending. That's them making fun of us. (laughs) Like, I like when they make fun of us, but they're never naturally just like, Calapunga. Like, they don't do that out of nowhere. But we'll be over there and we'll just be like, cheerio out of nowhere. It's sick. (laughs) We're sick. Yeah. We're sick. We're sick people. (laughs) Um, But let's move on and watch more sick people. Or listen, listen. Thank you for also listening. We're really obsessed with you. And we feel 
happy that we get to do this. Yes. Oh, we, other big news. I got to go um, to a restaurant. I never went to a sushi belt restaurant. Whoa, when did you go? Um, in Chicago. I went with my sister, her husband and friend. And I love and she's that. my friend. Too. They're, you know, they've known each other since they were 12. Like my elders. Um, but... And then you pay by the, you know, plate colors. It was yes. so fun. And then you could still order to yourself if you want it on a screen. And a, a, there's a train track on top with giant trucks. And a truck will bring it just to your table. Whoa. I want to go to one in LA. There is, there are good ones it. that people like. But I, there's one that like, it's so hard to get a reservation. It's not like it's exclusive. It's just like you have to do it on their app. And the app is like really not designed well. Like I have the app. Like I really want to go. Speaking um, of poorly designed apps, like all the grocery stores in Chicago have apps. They're so hard to use. My dad needs so much help. And I it, like I was struggling figuring out how to apply the coupons and switch the screens and where to look. And it's like, go back to having a preferred card. Ugh. Go back to a paper thing or make these apps easier. Like what yeah. the fuck? Yeah. We're trying to keep coupons away from our elderly parents <laughs> and I'm not here for it. You know, I'm not here for it. Yeah. Oh my so God, that reminds me of that Coupon Queen movie, the Queen Pin movie that I watched on Delta. Anyway, I love or, that movie. Yeah. We love murder, obviously, and scary shit, but it's like, I do love suspense when you know it's not going to get too bad. Like Cruel Summer, it's for teens. Yeah. So it's not going to get too dark even though there's kidnapping. And I like that. The imposters, I think that was like a VH1 or Bravo scripted. Yeah. Like, you know, it's scary. It's there's suspense, but it'll be okay. Look, the stakes are a little lower. Yeah. No and that's how die. Queen Pen felt. And then isn't like BB Rexa in it wildly? Isn't she oh, like yes. the hacker? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yes. That's so funny. I forgot that that was BB Rexa's big acting turn. Um, you that you would hate Mr. Robot because Mr. Robot is like suspense, but like everything is like if this goes wrong, the fucking world is gonna shut down. <laughs> like it's so suspenseful and so high stakes. Um, but wow. well, I like that too. You know, yeah. Arlington yeah. Road. I like I like real suspense. <laughs> I love a twist. Twist for your nerves. Yes. Well, let's let's get into speaking of twists. Let's get into it's today's such a episode. Good episode. Yeah, it's such a good episode. And this is our 150th episode, babies. That's the sesquicentennial, I believe, is what it's called. Uh, so that's our that's from Waiting for Guffman. Remember, it's their 150th anniversary of their town, so they have the sesquicentennial. That's the only reason I know. <laughs> wow, what if I just knew the different uh, centennial well, that's, names? Yeah, for those who don't know why Kara is suddenly explaining herself, it's because I gave her a dirty look for knowing that. <laughs> She's like, how the fuck? Um, but yeah, we're excited. Our 150th episode, we've always wanted to do this ep, and here we are, so don't go anywhere. Okay, we are doing a very requested episode called Authority. Everyone has asked for this since we started this podcast 20 years ago, and here we are finally doing it. It's season nine, episode 17. It does feel like a holiday. Like, it feels extra special. It feels maybe not the first time we had, you know... Captain Craig and that was that. I remember that excitement, but this yeah. feels um, really special. Yeah, I'm excited to do this one. And I mean, people call this one the Robin Williams episode. Yeah, of uh, course. <laughs> obviously. And it is our 150th episode. So we had to pick a banger. And here we are with authority. So I love 150. Honestly, I love it more than 100. <laughs> I love it. What? 
Wait, in Waiting for Guffman, I think the 150th is called the Susquecentennial. I think that's Wait, what they call it. Girl, so um, I forgot what city I was in. I, this was Portland. I got a present with enamel pins. And one is clearly for me. And then like one is clearly for you. But I didn't know the reference. So I was just like, I don't know which one it is. And just this week, I, I looked and it's fucking... Porky? Parker, it's Parker oh. Posey from Waiting for Guffman in her Dairy Queen outfit. Oh my God, yay! And I a pin. That. I know, so it's in my bag. So when I see you today, um, you you have to have it. I just looked it up. Oh, and that reminds me, I have a fucking birthday present for you too, a small one. That's, yeah, yeah, I'll bring that in the car today too. It won't be wrapped. I hope that's okay. Um, um, that's totally Okay. <laughs> But um, yeah, this was when we did trivia at our live show. This was one of the questions. What is this episode called? Because I think it's so, you would call it the Robin Williams one. No one's calling it authority. But it makes so much sense. And he's such a good actor and he's so talented. And he really, (sighs) him more than Jim Carrey. But like both of these just wild Looney, Looney Tunes changed our lives. Yeah. They are singular talents in a way where it's like no one even comes close. They do these extraordinary things pushing to the limits of comedy, drama. I don't know. It's. Wait, were you and I talking on this podcast about how there's like a PG and a PG 13 and an R rated version of Mrs. Doubtfire? Cause like that's how good this. I'm like. Jared and I were talking about it because he tried to, Jared tried to tell me that it was a drive-by fruiting and I go, it's a run-by fruiting. Like, I know Mrs. Doubtfire. So I had to Google it and prove him wrong. And then he goes, I bet you Robin Williams. I go, that sounds kind of improvised, like an improvised line. Like, it was a run-by fruiting because like, I don't know, it sounds improvised to me. And he goes, yeah, I bet Robin Williams had like 50 takes for like, and everyone different anytime he did anything. So, wow, this has turned into a full tribute to Robin Williams. (laughs) I'm about to like start crying to a picture of the genie, but- um, I know. And also just, he did a lot for um, extremely hairy men, I would say too. He really (laughs) is, he pushed hair to the limit. I would spotty hair (laughs) to the limit. For I don't know anyone as hairy as him that's out famous. No, and he was living in the pre-laser days. You know, who knows what would have happened? (laughs) No, I think he would have left it because it gives, you know, Jumanji and stuff. Like, you don't have to have. And Birdcage. I mean, he really, he's also, he doesn't just, like, have body hair. He's the, he pushed it to the limit. Yeah, like, He wore low cut. And do we have, like, funny man leading men like that now that are, like, not hotties. You know what I mean? Like we're giving Chris Pine comedy roles or whatever. We're giving, you know, like certain people, but like who is like Robin Williams where it's like not conventionally a hot man, handsome, but like, you know, and just such a good big talent that they're carrying movies, you know? Maybe like Steve Carell back when 40-year-old virgin and stuff was his big times. And what about Seth Rogen? Yeah. I guess like but Seth they're Rogen's not a little bit more one note to me. Like Seth Rogen's so funny to me, but he's like stoner dude like thing. And Robin Williams just did so much. Like you were I, saying, singular. But I don't think, I didn't think we were trying to compare the comedic skill. I don't think anyone is Robin Williams. Yeah. You no were just saying not, I was just saying not that said, hot comedy guys. <laughs> and then you were like, but they're not Robin Williams. I'm like, I'm playing no, 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 no. I kind of, you know what I mean? Like where their talent was enough to get them like huge rather than just like looks or hotness or Nepo or whatever. But you're right. Seth Rogen would count for that. And he did a lot of drama. I mean, because I watched Awakenings. 
Oh also my God. Also at one of our live show, I said spring awakening instead of awakenings and only one person laughed and I bet they were laughing at me now that I think about it. <laughs> it's all. <laughs> well, it's probably one of those things where I just moved on because I've never seen spring awakening, but I have seen awakenings and oh my God. Wait, you remember that... this. You remember this moment? I, no, I'm just saying oh. it probably, I probably was like, okay, like, because I've never seen spring awakening. Because normally if I knew I would say something, but anyway. Awakenings, are... awakenings, um, they made us watch it in school and I don't think I was ready. I don't think, I think I was too young. Like that like fucked me up. Yeah, I think we really did justice to Robin Williams before yeah. you go into this really good twisty turning. And I think this is a Helen Shaver episode. Oh. Let me see who directed this because it is done like a movie and I feel like her episodes are very movie-like, but we'll see who it is. It says directed by David Platt. Okay, let's see what he's up to because it did seem like so it's really cinematic. Yeah. Let's see how many SVUs he's done. Really not that many. I don't know. I'm a little confused. Oh, director. Okay. He's actually, he's done my lucky number. So he's done 54 episodes of SVU. Holy shit. Okay. From 2000 to 2010. Because it is, it is done so well. There's like explosions. I feel like we're just in so many locations. Yeah. And he's, wonder, he's directed an episode of Suits for all you freaking Suits heads out there. Who's making Suits the biggest show in the world? It's so confusing. Oh, yeah, 54, fuck. And he did 29 of regular. Well, I One was, of trial by jury. <laughs> I, was for, I was with friends at the beach and they started going um, in on like why they love Suits and they did sell it in a funny way. And they said in every episode, someone says something and it sparks something in the lawyer. Every time it's like, oh my God, wait, did you just say that? And then they run yeah. the court. <laughs> and like, I guess that's in every episode. And they said that like the rules of time, like SVU is grounded in reality in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I guess Suits is just like, science doesn't matter. Um, law doesn't matter. Everything's made up. And it's just, but I'm having trouble getting into the first episode. I should just start on a random and see how I feel. Yeah, I, the funniest thing someone said to me about Suits was that in Suits, the whole law is just like a vibe. Like, it's like the law part of it is a vibe. It's like they don't really get that into the law. It's just kind of like around that there's some law, you know? Ooh, okay. I'm looking through his episodes, you know, and he did Sick, the Michael Jackson one, which Ooh. is a really funny one. Okay. If, if you haven't listened to our podcast, that one's a good one. Oh, That's we should one of our start. Most that's one of our most popular because the Michael Jackson haters came for us. Uh, I mean, the Michael Jackson fans came for us. Um, we're also Michael Jackson fans. We yes. just also, there's a reality where he is a molester. Like, yeah. I, I don't understand. You think we all hated Michael Jackson? <laughs> like, grow up. We're, we, yeah, we're but alive. they were tweeting us FBI files and all this stuff, like proving oh, his innocence. I and I was like, I, I can't read this. But anyway. I'm sorry. If, the lo if a local employee at your local grocery store had a sleepovers with children, you would have his head. So yeah. bore me the details. But yes, of <laughs> course, we, we're not tapping our foot when Michael Jackson comes on. These people, like we hate him. <laughs> It's disappointing when the ones you admire are molesters, but most men are. Okay, yeah. just start this episode. Okay, here we go. We are doing authority. Um, we open on a cheerful gal at a fast food place called Happy Burger, asking a woman if she can take her order, to which the woman replies, what you can take is a mop and bucket to the ladies' room. Poor kids tossing her cookies in there. And you think... 
that's going to be where we're going. Like, uh-oh, someone's in the bathroom having a, like a crisis and then here comes. But it's also been a minute since I've heard the term tossing your cookies, like such a gentle way to refer to the violence of vomiting. But this girl is like, thank you for your excellent feedback. Have a happy burger day. And that is customer service. Then she tells Joel he has to go deal with the bar from the bathroom. Joel is annoyed and, um, you know, I am too, because they actually show a pile of barf on the show and I did not need that. I understand what vomit looks like. You don't have to show it. Um, So thank you, David Platt, for getting that shot. And um, as he's like monologuing to himself over how gross Happy Burger is, he hears a scream from behind a door. So it's not even, we're not even getting to the person who threw up. We hear a scream behind a door that says employees only. Also the name of a new podcast I'm on. Please check it out. And a girl yells, please don't make me do it. And Joel's like, Trini, is that you? And he starts trying to get the door open, but the door is locked. So now we cut to a uniformed officer leading Benson and Stabler in, giving them the walk and talk info. The suspect and the victim are barricaded in the manager's office. It's reinforced steel. That's never good. The only person with keys is the manager, Dwight Lomax, but he's MIA. Trini Martinez is the name of the victim, and the perp says he'll only talk to Detective Milgram, but 1PP has no record of a Milgram on the job. So what the fuck is going on? They walk up to the door and announce themselves, and Liv goes, yeah, I'm Milgram's partner. He's on his way. The door opens right up, and this is Scott Adsit of 30 Rock fame. If you're a 30 Rock person, he's like a big character on 30 Rock, and I love him. And he's like... Oh, thank God, you're finally here. I did everything you told me to do. And Trini is a really young girl. She's tied up, gagged, and is wearing only a Happy Burger apron. And it doesn't look good in there. And we're at the credits. So they get to it pretty quick here. So top of act one, Stabler walks into interrogation where a cheery Scott Adsit, who is playing the manager, Dwight Lomax. So he, that's why he was MIA. He was in the steel, the steel room. And he's like, is Milgram here yet? I want my pat on the back from Milgram. And Stabler's like, he's stuck in traffic. And then he goes, that's okay. He knows everything that happened. And Stabler's like, why don't you tell me what happened? And he said he was sitting at his desk. Milgram called and said that someone stole a wallet from a customer and that the woman at the precinct was at the precinct filling out a complaint. And he told Dwight to hold Trini until he got there so that she couldn't hide any evidence. So he called her thieving little butt, quote unquote, into his office. Now, Trini is talking to Benson, who has a long bob, no highlights, just to put us in a place in time. I feel like she's let the highlights grow out at this point. Also, Trini is played, I looked this up because I didn't recognize her, but I don't know what made me look her up, played by Monica Raymond. She's also been in other stuff like Chicago Fire in the Dick Wolf universe, but she also has gone on to direct and directed the episode Hell's Kitchen, which we covered about the restaurateur who was like, you know, assaulting his waiters and staff. So that's amazing. This girl went from being like kind of a bit part on this episode to directing. Go Monica Raymond. And uh, she's also directed an episode of the of uh, Law & Order OC. So I don't know which one. Now we're, we're bouncing back between Stabler talking to Dwight and uh, Benson talking to Trini. And she's describing how Dwight said she had, uh, she told him she had nothing in her pockets but lip gloss. And he was basically telling everything to the phone to the quote unquote cops. He locked the door to search her, says Dwight. He said, Milgram said he had evidence that she had money on her. And then he told him to pat her down. He touched her all over, Trini says, starting to cry. She's very traumatized by what's happened to her. He to She told him it wasn't right, but he kept doing it. And he's like, Milgram said to strip search her and I was that I was acting as an agent of the police. He's like, I put on gloves. It's like so disturbing. He made her take her clothes off, put his hands on her everywhere. This is Trini's account. She begged him to stop, but he wouldn't. 
And then now we're back to Dwight and he goes, I told Milgram she was clean, but he said I must have missed something and just to hold her there till I got there. So Stabler breaks it down and goes, so you strip searched a teenage girl and kept her naked in your office for 30 minutes. And Dwight is like, well, Detective Milgram said she could keep her apron on. And Stabler goes, you're an idiot, which I love the directness of that. And he goes, I resent that detective after all I've done for the police department. It's like, so what? He goes, you sexually abused a girl because a voice on the phone told you to. And he's like, I was just following Milgram's orders. And he goes, there is no Milgram. The whole thing was a scam. And then you see Scott Adsit's character. You see Dwight realize what he's done. And he's like, oh, fuck. Like, what have I done? So they next scene, they bring him into holding and he's crying, obviously. Q Munch, obviously, is going to get way into this. He's like, just following orders. That's the preferred defense of every war criminal from Eichmann to Milosevic. So... Finn's like, whatever, Dwight got punked by a phone call and Munch jumps to his defense. He's like, he's just a victim of corporate America. And Finn's like, here we go. And Munch totally gears up for his TED Talk. And he's like, these big corporations like McDonald's, which is clearly what Happy Burger is kind of supposed to be, are all about following orders from corporate, the franchise mentality where employees are lemmings, follow the manual. You know, Munch is getting into all of his... Shit about, you know, Big Brother and the corporations. Stabler pops in to say, oh, well, Dwight's looking at three to six years. And Benson is like, what about this Milgram? Who called him on the phone? And Munch is like, oh, he's dead. And they're like, you know him? And obviously <laughs> he, he explains that Milgram is a psychology professor who if you've ever taken like a psych or a sociology class in college, you read about this experiment. It's a famous experiment where he instructed volunteers to give electric shocks to screaming victims it turns out the shocks weren't real. The people shocking them were just like friends shocking their friends because they someone told them to. So it's there's more on this later. We got nothing on the caller. They say he used a prepaid phone card on a payphone. And I have not seen a payphone in so long. What a what a fun blast from the past. And it was at a public library in Midtown. Maybe there's cameras at the library. Munch goes, no way. The librarians took on Big Brother so they couldn't monitor what you and I are reading. I love that. Good, good job. We, I know we have a lot of librarian listeners. We thank you for your service. Um, Taru tried to chase down who bought the card, but he couldn't. The guy is either really lucky or damn good. And Munch is like, well, my money's on good. And then he finds a website that's called IHateHappyBurger.com where ex-employees shit on Happy Burger. And I wish that that was, I think that's just Reddit now, but I would really love to see a website like that. And Munch goes, revenge of the corporate wage slaves. And so uh, there's a whole post about someone is behind a hoax where he calls and pretends to be a cop making the employees at these Happy Burgers do stuff. This guy has hit fast food chains all over the country and a lot of them are right there in New York. So now we're talking to Ruben Morales, a.k.a. Joel De La Fuente, friend of the pod, and he has built a hoax database, okay? Um, and the guy uh, has predictable routines. He The calls come in weekday mornings, always between 10 and 11.30 a.m., which is after the breakfast rush, but before lunch so that the managers aren't so busy that they'll blow him off. So, smart timing. Uh, the guy uses a fresh prepaid card every time. They can't trace uh, the cards, but he did buy them all at the same value mart. So, the, And they have to be activated by a cashier, and that's in the computer, so we know when he bought them. And Morales is a step ahead. He's like, I already ran the value mart security footage through facial recognition, and I found this guy. And we zoom in on the tape, and it is the legendary Robin Williams, who we have already praised on this podcast. Then they do zoom in and enhance, which we know is not possible, but they do it. And they see that he's got a lanyard and an ID badge on. They can't make out his name, but the company is Aerodax Labs. At the lab, they find out that this guy's name is Merritt Rook. 
which is funny because a rook is the name of a chess piece. And when I looked it up, the verb to rook is to defraud or swindle someone. So maybe a writer was having a fun time giving him a name. The guy at the lab can't believe that Merritt would have done anything illegal. He's an audio engineer in the aerospace division. It's very not Merritt. He's a nice guy. And then a woman named Dr. Cheng comes out and is like, oh, Merritt's out sick today. And he was yesterday too. So Benson and Stabler are like, house call. See you later. So now they're knocking on a door of an apartment and uh, Merritt Rook answers and says, how can I help you? And they comment, you don't look sick since when is it a crime to play hooky detective? He replies. So they ask to go inside and Stabler calls him Detective Milgram. And he goes, oh, you must have me confused with someone else. And he says, uh, he does buy the phone cards at that value mart, but he gives them to the homeless so that they can call their families because he knows what it's like to be alone. And it's like, um, I think maybe they'd prefer a sandwich, but the phone cards are nice too. Did you use one of the cards at the Midtown Library yesterday? He says, no, I was out of town on a trout fishing trip. Don't tell my boss. He shows them his fishing license and his hotel bill. He's got everything on him. He doesn't have credit cards because they gouge the working man with their interest rates. So he pays cash, I guess, for everything. But he hands them a card of a place called Daffodils where he had every meal. And they're like, oh, you just happen to have that handy? I call bullshit. You can't get a hotel room without a credit card on file. Because how are they going to do incidentals? In 2008? Oh, yeah, because (sighs) they need need collateral. The whole point of the credit card is not even to pay for it. It's so you don't fuck up the room and steal pillows. I know, I know. But I know that there are... Like, I don't know, maybe because it was in like a tiny little fishing town, like they, it was a motel and they let him pay cash. But you're right. It is like, you're not going to get very far in life without a credit card, unfortunately. I mean, I was thinking about that the other day. There's like all these, there's tolls now that are like just credit card only. Like everything goes to your credit card. I don't know what you do if you don't have a credit card. Anyway, he says, no, I kept the business card because the waitress had a crush on me and she wrote her number on the back. So now... We're on the phone with the waitress. And she says, oh yeah, I remember that cutie and his fishing hat and waiters. And um, he was there on Monday, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't think he came for the blue plate special, if you know what I mean. And this is obviously Robin Williams' voice. I'm having having Mrs. Doubtfire flashbacks of when he's like, Layla, get back in your cell. Don't make me get the hose on you. Like all, my family and I used to just do all his voices from Mr. Mrs. Doubtfire. We love that. Yeah, you really know a lot of the lines from... This is Doubtfire. <laughs> it's a Clank family classic. I don't know what to say. I mean, we love it so much. And then I think it probably had a moment where it was playing on HBO all the time and that's all we had access to. So um, so the alibi checks out, I guess, because of this lady on the phone and now they call the hotel and the guy who answers also sounds like Robin Williams. But in this universe, I get that he is not a beloved comedian and voice actor. And he puts them on hold and even has a recorded, like, your call is important to us, like, message. So it all seems very legit. As if this isn't wild enough, Cragen strolls up and blows the whole thing wide open. He goes, he was fishing? Yeah, right. My friend just tried to go trout fishing and he was denied a license because the EPA put a ban on angling after they found chemical runoff in the rivers. LOL. This made me laugh so hard. I was like, what? So that's how they're busting this guy. You, He did all these things to cover his tracks, but he didn't check that you can't even fucking fish in this area. That's funny. Um, the hotel guy comes back and goes, yep, he was here Sunday and Monday nights. Munch asks about the trout and he goes, oh yeah, they're biting up a storm. So we, we're figuring out that this is uh, more hoaxy 
situation than than uh, than an alibi. So now we've got Benson and Stabler outside of Merritt's place, and Elliot is whispering into a flip phone, and they start calling uh, one of the numbers, and the phone starts ringing inside the apartment, and they hear Robin Williams answer the phone, being like you know, faraway motel or whatever. Like, I forgot what the name of it is. And they bust in. This guy's got a dozen (laughs) flip phones on chargers. He's running a full-scale, like, town out of multiple cell phones. He says, please hold, as we fade to black. And it's like, it is funny because it's serious and he's doing a good job acting, but I do still find him funny when he's like, please hold, (laughs) getting busted by the cops. Like, I don't know. It's the same with Martin Short. It's like, even though he was a psycho murderer, rapist, He was still making me laugh. So now, top of act two, we're in interrogation and he's admitting to lying about the fishing trip. He's like, listen, Dr. Chang gave me a heads up that you guys had been at my work looking for me. I didn't want her to know the truth, which is that I was with a sex worker. I don't even know her name. My wife died three years ago. I miss her terribly. And when the pain gets really bad, I hit the streets. And Stabler goes, you screw whores in your dead wife's bed. And it's like, ease the fuck up, Stabler. Like, Jesus. <laughs> um, and Merritt's like, Merritt's like, but we don't have sex. We just sleep. It's just comforting having a warm, soft body next to me. I close my eyes and it feels like Juliet is back. That's his wife. That's very sad. Okay, so you made fake receipts, fake business card, and put on voices just so your coworker wouldn't find out about your sleepover thing. Stabler's not buying it. Um, you get your rocks off getting guys to molest young girls at Happy Burger. And he's like, no way, I'm a locavore. He only buy, which means he only buys organic seasonal foods grown by local farmers. Me too. He doesn't have a credit card and he, that seems like a hard way to live in New York City. I feel like there's other places you would be happier. But um, he goes off about chain restaurants and how they suck so bad. Processed food, chemical additives. Big mistake. (laughs) Why why would you give him this? Why would you give, he's such a smart dude, all those little phones. And then you start, this. <laughs> you just can't help yourself. You just have to rail this against is the how you get fast out of food industry. like jury duty. You know, it's like a fa- yeah. and you go. I hate fast food. And yeah, then you yeah, get off yeah. jury. Not how <laughs> totally. you cover a crime, but yeah. Go on, go on. <laughs> Yeah, he's talking about the advertising is aimed at toddlers, blah, blah, blah. And then on the other side of the one-way glass, Cragen's talking to Novak. And she's like, I mean, I could hold him on obstruction for lying, but we got to link him to the Happy Burger somehow. And they're like, what about a voice ID with the manager? And she goes, um, he fooled Munch with his cast of characters. You think he's going to like sound the same way as he did when he was impersonating Detective Milgram? And he, she goes, I need proof he made those calls. And Finn walks in and goes, then I must be your fairy godmother. Love it. And he goes, they got backup surveillance footage of a guy going into the library right before the call. Morales cleaned it up and it's Merritt Rook. They can, you can see it's like basically him wearing a hat, but it's like, it's his face. It's so funny because Jared just got, we just got, eight, nine months ago, we got a letter in the mail that was like, you owe $500. And we were like, what the fuck is this even for? I went online. We couldn't even see what it was for. We didn't know if it was me or Jared that did it. It was like a ticket from the from California DMV. So we show up at court. We requested a court date and they hand us a photo and it's black and white, like fully Xeroxed a thousand times. And it's so Jared. Like you can like, you cannot deny that it's him. Like people will go into those court things and be like, that's not me. You can't be positive. That's me. It's so Jared. Like it's, he goes, God, I wish that wasn't like my exact fucking face. Like it's him running a light. To my, in our defense, it was the day we were taking Rosie to urgent care because she busted her head open. Anyway, back to this. That seems like a way to get out of it. That's not a good excuse. Well, 
we went to the wrong courthouse because they since switched the courthouse since they sent us the note and we were supposed to be in Santa Monica. We were Beverly Hills. So they go, you can just call in. And because we were calling in, the woman goes, I can't really take that excuse because you're not here. I can't see you. And I and it's like, thank God, because she would have been like, sir, that's you. Like, so we pleaded it down and had to pay less money, but still not a great amount of money um, for him running a light. Anyway. No, I mean, isn't it a good enough reason if you're going to the urgent care? I know, but we didn't try it because he had already tried to deny it. He was not letting me talk on the phone. Trust me, I would have gone to a different, I would have gone a different route. I said that. I go, tell them it was like, uh, we were trying to get our daughter to urgent care. We have medical records that prove it, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, it's not me. I was like, okay. (laughs) You know, one of us is into SVU and the other's not. Now at his arraignment, Merritt's got one count of conspiracy to commit sexual abuse in the first degree. And it's Judge Petrovsky. She wants to know, where's your lawyer? And like so many freaks before him, this guy wants to represent himself. And she goes, you know the old adage? And he goes, a man that represents himself has a fool for a client. Of course he knows it. But he claims he doesn't make enough money to afford a private attorney. He makes too much money for a public defender. And I'm like, I don't think that's how it works. You Anybody can get a public defender. And Petrovsky goes, the court He's just too good. Like he just, yeah. he, you know, he's yeah. like, listen, I've seen, I've seen better. And I can't, I can't go with yeah. one of these fools. Totally. So Petrovsky's like, we can find you a lawyer. And he's like, some court-appointed hack, a mouthpiece who will sleep through a trial, a client who won't make him rich because he won't get the book rights. It's like, okay, where are we going here? Whatever. They let him rep himself. Novak asks for $250,000 bail and he goes, no problem. Petrovsky's like, you're supposed to argue here. And he's like, no, that sounds fair. And she's like, I thought you were broke. And he's like, I can put my apartment up for that. It's it's worth way more than that. And he goes um, up to Novak and tells her he's really looking forward forward to working with her and she's fuming and but she goes yeah should be fun and then he excuses himself to go post his bail and you have to post 10% which is 25k do you get that back let us know i don't know if you get that back even if you're innocent um but now we're at trial Merritt approaches Stabler on the stand um, and says, "Any? do you have any doubts that I'm guilty? And Stabler goes, nope. And he's like, well, what qualifies you to make that decision? And he's like, well, I've been a detective for 16 years. Uh, Merritt goes, have you ever heard of a situation like this before? Like someone fondling a young girl because a voice on the phone told him to? And Stabler says, nothing surprises me when it comes to the depraved mind. Like, you don't know what I've seen. I've been on this job. Merritt goes, isn't it more probable that Dwight, the manager, had the hots for Trini and made this whole thing up to to justify acting out a sexual fantasy. Stabler's like, we have proof of the phone call that you made with one of your cards. And he says, but I give those to the homeless and they love the library. Like, famously, homeless people love the library. So we have you on video entering the library to make the call, Stabler says. And he goes, are you sure? And that, then we cut to Morales. Now, Morales is on the stand. And by the way, Morales is the lieutenant now. Congratulations, King. How did you enhance the photo, Merritt asks him. And he goes, oh, I ran it through this software to remove shadow, et cetera. Essentially, it sounds like the filters we now have on Instagram. Like, you can do shadows, you can do highlights, you can brighten it up. You can see a lot more, like, on a dark photo now, even on just the crap we have on our phones. And he goes, yeah, so I did this and that. And he goes, so you manipulated the image. And he's like, yes, scientifically. And then he whips out a huge blow up of the original photo and you cannot see the person's face at all. And he goes, that could be me or juror number four. And juror number four goes, it's not me. And Merritt (laughs) goes, me either. And it's like, he's so charming. Like I could see myself falling for this if I was a juror. Um, 
And Morales explains how the computer cleans up the image, but it kind of looks like bad the way he's explaining it, that the computer is like guessing at how to clean it up. And that's like not, I don't think that's really what's happening, but he starts playing. So he starts, you know, going on with this this line of questioning being like, well, if the computer's guessing, then it really could be anyone. It could be you, it could be you, it could be you, whatever. And so everyone's, Novak looks pissed. Like this guy's doing well. Now, Novak's in her office with Huang, and he's like, babe, I brought you some coffee. I heard you got your ass handed to you in court today. Let's dish. And Novak's like, I'm like shocked at how good of a lawyer this guy is. And she understands why people rape and kill, but she cannot understand why this guy is playing these games. And here comes Huang with the profile. He's manipulative. He gets off on making people do things they don't want to do. Novak talks about this kid she knew in grade school who tricked kids into eating rabbit shit saying they were raisins. And that she would never do that because the kid was a sadist. And the last she heard about that guy, he was selling used cars in Toledo and still scamming. So Juan goes, well, why don't you dig into Merritt Rook's childhood? Maybe you'll find something. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, back in court, Merritt is on the stand. And he's essentially cross-examining himself. He's just like giving a statement. He's in the witness box, but he's just talking freely. And he's like, I'm a scientist. I work to improve people's lives. I've never had trouble with the law and I hate what happened to that girl. I'm outraged and I want the perp to be brought to justice, but it wasn't me. Then he rests his case because yeah, he's it's he's a lawyer, I guess. And so now it's Novak's turn. And she's like, so you've never been in trouble with the law. And he's like, nope. And she goes, you're under oath. Have you ever been arrested? And he says, no. And then she pulls out an article from the Hartford Tribune of 13-year-old Merritt Rook being arrested for malicious mischief, trespassing burglary, and arson. He burned down a house. And he tells the judge, I was a minor. That was expunged from my record. And Novak's like, you can't expunge a newspaper record, baby. And it's now it's Judge Lois Preston. And she says, she'll allow it. Casey's like, so you lied. He says, I can explain and tells them the story about how the house was in his neighborhood. It was abandoned and kids used to drink and do drugs there. And they also raped a little 11-year-old girl there. So he broke in and set their clubhouse on fire so that they couldn't continue to hurt people. And they're like, you didn't go to the police? And he goes, I did go to the police, but they didn't believe me because the son of the police chief was the ringleader. That's very possible in a small town, you know? And he's in prison right now for raping three women. So I had to stop these guys. And uh uh-oh, Casey, this has backfired because now I feel like the jury is thinks this man is a full hero. So now it's closing statements. He's addressing the jury saying Novak has no evidence. She has a doctored photograph and a phone card that I bought to give away as an act of charity. And uh, he doesn't blame Benson and Stable for arresting him or Novak putting him on trial. They're just following orders like sheep. We're all in danger of being sheep, never questioning authority. If you if you are drinking when they say the name of this title of the episode, this episode will get you wasted. They do say authority many times. He tells them to think for themselves, don't be a sheep. Novak's like, what a pretty little speech. And he's really good at convincing people to do things, but our evidence proves he did this. He's impersonating an innocent man. Don't be fooled. You guys are smart. Well, the jury comes back and they're like, no, we don't want to be sheep. So he's not guilty. Merritt screams out, thank you. And then he tries to hug Casey like it's the end of senior year. And Stabler's like, back off. And he's like, it's been fun. And then he leaves. Stabler, Benson, and Novak look very bummed out that this guy has gotten away with it. So now we're at the precinct and the gang is watching Merritt Rook on Scarborough Country, which is Joe Scarborough's like MSNBC show. And Stabler comes in late. And he was up all night with the baby. And he's like, colic is a bitch. I'm like, I bet it's the first and only night you've ever stayed up with the baby all night, but okay. Merritt Rook is on uh, Morning Joe with a sheep that he has named Elliot. 
What an own. I love this. He says he thinks we have to start questioning authority and he has merch. It's a little pin with like a no smoking sign going through a sheep. And Elliot's like, turn it off. Benson says, let's go crash his party. So they go to this rally where he's, you know, they're holding a no sheep rally, I guess. And there's a guy on a megaphone. And before I even look up who it is, I know who it is. It's Mo Rocca, because I remember him from The Daily Show. He has a very recognizable voice. And he's like, don't be sheep, whatever. And, and suddenly everybody takes out pillows and they start a huge pillow fight. The feathers are everywhere. My allergies started flaring up just watching it. I had to fast forward. <laughs> Munch is fully engaged in the pillow fight and loves it. This is his jam to just pillow fight with a bunch of other dissenters. In the precinct now, Munch is fully defending Merritt. He's on the Merritt train. He's like, you've got him all wrong. He made the calls, but it was never about sex. It was about the danger of obedience. If you don't question authority, you lose your humanity. He doesn't condone what he did, but he gets where he's coming from. He spoke to Merritt and he just wants people to wake up. And they're like, with pillow fights? And he's like, well, we stopped Vietnam with sit-ins. And they're like, well, what war is Merritt fighting here? The battle against fast food? And he goes, well, you should hear his tirade against managed care. Liv's like, so he has a problem with his HMO. Who doesn't? Munch explains, this is the big reveal, that Merritt's wife died in childbirth and the baby died too. And they're like, oh my God, was it medical malpractice? Why didn't he sue? And there's like, there's no lawsuit because they looked it up when they were put, taking him to court. He's never filed a suit. So this guy's not going to let the doctor who killed his whole family get off the hook. So now we cut to St. Mark's Hospital where Frenchie from Greece, a.k.a. Didi Khan, who has been on three other episodes of the show, says, oh, Dr. Slifkin, he's dead. He was in a freaky car accident a couple years ago. He T-boned a semi and it decapitated him. She thinks he was drunk, but the official word was brake failure. She remembers Juliet Rook, so sad, 18 hours of heavy labor. The husband insisted on a C-section, but the doctor thought he knew better than a first-time dad. Juliet had a placental abruption. Dr. Slifkin missed it. So Mr. Rook lost it, understandably, and said he'd kill the doctor and security had to escort him out. So they go to Melinda's house and she's reviewed the autopsy and says that his blood alcohol was 0.04, which is tipsy, but not over the limit. And also his liver was cirrhotic. So he was an alcoholic. So one to two drinks and like a 0.04 would not have done much to someone like that. Uh, and O'Halloran is there too. And he goes, and there's no sign of tampering with the car. The investigation was pretty thorough. He sped through an intersection and thought he could beat the truck. But then why would they say it was brake failure? You can tell if brakes work or not. So that's a fuck up to me. But Melinda says she sees a lot of a suspicious MVAs. I looked it up. I think it's multiple vehicle accidents or something. And she checked and the insurance company never paid out for this. So what's up? So the insurance company said it was suicide because he left a note for his wife saying he was taking his own life to spare her. Uh, Detective Milgram won't stop calling me, says the note. He says, I'm going to prison for murder. I never meant to harm that woman and her baby. God forgive me. So Merritt drove this doctor to suicide is what they're positing. Uh, they just need to link the calls to Merritt and they've got him. And O'Halloran says, well, he won't be at home. There's another event for his social revolution happening at 10 p.m. at Grand Central Station. So they hurry down to Grand Central, which I think Grand Central is one of the most beautiful buildings. I love when they shoot there. I, I just love to see it. They hurry down there. Everything looks normal. They start to look around and then they see Mo Rocca again with his mug megaphone and he's chanting, no sheep, no sheep. And then he blows a whistle 
and like half the people on the concourse freeze and they're totally frozen. Like people are frozen mid-yogurt, they're frozen mid-stride, like everybody's frozen. This is some kind of flash mob thing to prove that people are sheep. I don't know. Uh, Merritt is there. They spot him. He's also frozen. And Benson's like, you're under arrest for the murder of Dr. Francis Slifkin and you're not walking away this time. He goes, I was a sheep and I let him slaughter my wife. And Benson says, that doesn't give you the right to destroy his life. Benson grabs his arm and suddenly we see Stabler jogging through the crowd and he loses them. It's a weird transition because you just see Liv walk away with a suspect, which we've seen her do a thousand times. But now suddenly Stabler thinks something's weird because he can't find them. Next thing we see is ESU busting into Merritt Rook's apartment yelling, police, search warrant, but they're not there. Where did he take her? So we're just deducing that Merritt Rook has kidnapped Liv somehow. Suddenly, Lake is there. They let him be in two scenes of this episode. And he's got photos of them from Grand Central. And Liv is walking alongside Merritt, not resisting. In the next picture, she's dumping her cell phone and her gun in a garbage. And now Finn's got those things. And Cragen says, have Taru look at it in case anything's on Olivia's phone. Elliot says, he must have had a gun on her and she didn't want to risk shooting civilians. And Merritt, does Merritt have a second home? Does he have friends or family close with anyone at work? And in the apartment, they see a picture of him with Dr. Cheng, who we met earlier, and he was worried she would find out about the him and the sex worker, but why would she care? So maybe there's something more between them. Now we cut to Stabler talking to Dr. Cheng. She admits that she went on a date with Merritt years ago. Halfway through their date at a jazz club, a certain song came on and Merritt started sobbing. He didn't say why, he just ran out and left her there. And then the pianist that they were there to see said, oh, I forgot that I recorded that song with Merritt's wife. She was a singer. They met when he produced one of her albums. And they're like, understandably, how did he go from music to aerospace? And I guess he quit music after his wife died. And audio engineering is the same wherever you do it. So she tells them that his old studio where he used to produce music was at Tone Down Records in Brooklyn. So Elliot heads there by himself, of course. Why would you bring back up? It's basically abandoned. He sees Merritt in a chair facing away. When he enters the room, Merritt spins around like a cartoon villain. And he goes, oh, didn't think you'd make it here so quick. And he says, I'm unarmed. And Elliot's like, get your hands up in the air. And he's like, yes, sir. Where's my partner? And he goes, wouldn't you like to know? And he's like, no more games. And he goes, or what? You'll shoot me, then you'll never find her. So Stabler's like, you got me there. Lowers his gun. He turns on the light in the booth. He's basically in like a music recording room where you see people, you know, there's somebody in the sound booth and somebody at the boards and lives in the sound booth. She's strapped to a chair behind one-way glass. She can't see or hear anything that's going on behind the door because like Stabler's obviously like, live, and she can't hear anything. He says the door is wired with an explosive and if he opens it, they'll all blow up and he's holding the detonator in his hand. And he wants to do a little experiment. How far will you go to save your partner? He tells Olivia over a mic that Elliot is there and Liv goes, just do what he says, Elle. And Elliot screams her name and Merritt's like, look, I'm in charge now. Sit your huge ass down and listen to me. And he's like, not being Mr. Charming anymore. He explains that Olivia is sitting in a chair that's wired for electricity, 250 volts, controlled by a little buzzer. Old Sparky, the famous electric chair, gives out 10 times that. So this electric shock won't kill her, but it will hurt. And so Elliot goes, oh, the Milgram experiment. Only this time, the shock's for real. He turns off the lights on Olivia and then presses the button and we hear Olivia screaming in pain. And he tells he tells Stabler to press the button, but he won't do it. And so then he presses it again. We hear another Olivia scream. He says, that was two seconds. Keep refusing and I'll up it to four seconds. And then I'll double the voltage. And he's like, why are you doing this? And he goes, to teach you a little lesson about power and authority. Drink again. 
You cops with your guns and your badges think you can do anything. You own the streets. <laughs> and Elliot goes, I've never abused my authority. Drink again, but also drink another time for Elliot saying he's never abused his authority, which is hilarious. Merritt's like, uh, you all do. And he's not wrong. I mean, every single cop abuses their authority in some way, even if you're like fixing a parking ticket for someone. But Elliot realizes that this is about the cops in his town who didn't believe him about the rape of the little girl. And he was too scared to stand up to them. What about Slifkin? You scared of him too? This isn't about obedience or sheep. You just want me to suffer like you have. And he goes, you have no idea how I've suffered. And he's really good. Elliot goes, I have no idea what you've been through to lose your family. He goes, I didn't lose them. They were taken from me. And he goes, I didn't challenge the doctor's authority. Again, drink. He goes, I caved in. I sat there and I held my wife's hand and I watched her bleed to death. And he's getting upset. He's crying. It's really sad. He goes, I put my faith in a little guy in a white coat and he killed my wife and son. Push the button, he screams to Elliot. And then he pushes it. We hear Liv scream again. And he yells again. And and he keeps telling Elliot to push the button. And Elliot goes, no, too many people have suffered already. And he goes, then you, Elliot, are a human being. Congratulations. You're not a sheep like I was. You're a man. Thank you. Then he flips the light on and says, don't worry about your partner. And he hits the button again. And we hear the scream, but Liv is fine and just looking around confused because he says the screams were pre-recorded. He brought Liv into a sound booth and said, scream your heart out, baby. She did. And this thing he's holding in his hand is just a garage door opener referring to the detonator. He says the door's not wired either. So Elliot cuffs him and he goes to release Olivia. It was all fake. He faked it. Liv's like, what the hell? They're taking him out of the studio to bring him, you know, in. And he goes, can I tie my shoe? And they, these guys should know that they should tie the perp shoes for them. They don't, don't fall for this shit. And he bends down to tie his shoe and he has a detonator in his sock. He blows the whole studio up. Benson and Stabler hit the ground. Somehow Merritt's fine, takes off running. He goes through some hedges. He's cuffed the whole time, by the way. He goes through some hedges onto an abandoned playground. They lose him. They lose him. Like They're pretty fast at running. It's so crazy. There's a huge pond, but there's no sign of him. So Liv goes, if he went into that water cuffed, he's dead. But it's like, it takes longer than 30 seconds to drown. Like, and there's not even a ripple in the water. So they just like walk away and call it a day. They're like, it's almost like they wanted him to get away. Like they feel like he didn't really maybe do anything that bad. I don't know. Um, And that's the end of the episode. That's Dick Wolf. And I was just shocked at how this ended. Like, they just let him run away. The thing is, I want him to get away too, but I think they yeah. think he did something wrong and so do I, but I still am like, get out of here. Yeah. Get out of here, Mr. Rook. Um, I think, yeah. yeah. But, uh, well, stay tuned. This is so close to a real, a real life situation. So buckle up, guys. Don't be sheep. But buy our things that we're going to advertise to you. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Okay, so this case is David Richard Stewart. And this guy, he's like 38 years old, married, five kids. And this is the guy who's making all these calls, right? So there were a series of fraudulent phone calls made to a number of restaurants and small businesses. And the calls began in 1994 and lasted for 10 years. Um, But we didn't really piece anything together till 2004 and then worked backwards. And so he really was getting away with this from coast to coast for a decade. He would call, claim to be a police officer, and then would convince employees to operate strip searches and perform humiliating acts. So there were 70 phone calls reported across 30 states. Wow. And the big case that kind of blew this all open, it's the McDonald's case on April 9th, 2004. An 18-year-old in Mount Washington, Kentucky, who was an employee of the McDonald's, Louise, am I saying it right? Louise. It is Louise. Yeah. Named Louise Ogborn, and she was working the evening shift when the assistant manager, Donna Summers, and this I had to read a few times. I had to read it a few times. I was confused. So good. But um, so she called, so the assistant manager, Donna Summers, (laughs) called her into her office and she's like, hey, I'm on the phone with the police officer. And he said um, that you match a description, actually, of someone who stole a purse from a customer. And Summers uh, gave an option. She goes, listen, Ogborn, you submit to a search here or you get escorted to a police station. Then she was directed on the phone to demand Ogborn to remove all of her clothing and then Okay, so then, so she's going through it and it takes a really long time. And this girl gets fully naked. She's sitting with an apron. It's very much from the episode. Oh my God. And so basically this is all on camera. So there's a camera in the office. So this whole attack, everything is fully on camera. The detective, so there's a doc, there's a couple documentaries about this. And I watched the one on Netflix and like the detective watching the video started tearing up. He was like crying. I mean, it really like fucked people up. The video is pretty fucked up. So, you know, she's naked, whatever. She's holding her, all these tests, but then she has to get back to work, right? She's like, I got to get back to work. So the police officer on the phone is like, well, do you have any men that you trust? Like, can you call a man that you trust? And so she brought, she's like, I have a fiance, you know, Walter Nix. So wild thing. The police are like, bring him over to monitor her. And this woman calls the fiance. She gets back to work. And then the guy takes over. He's, and then it gets fucked. So he makes her do jumping jacks naked. 
jogging in place, stand on a chair, and it kept going. This is a three-hour ordeal. She was kept trapped in this McDonald's little office for three hours. Jesus. And it is like, at what point would it not hit you? Like, this is weird. Yeah. There's no way the cops want me to have a young teen naked do jumping jacks. Like, what the fuck? And at one point, he um, he's spanking her naked ass, like bent over his knee. And then he perf- he forced her to perform oral, a sexual act. The yeah. cop told him to do that or he decided to take that on for himself? No, the co- it was like the, truly the directions. This is horrific. It's fucked. SVU watered it down. Like SVU watered it down. It was only 30 minutes and it like, and it didn't, it was like, it was just, it was like more groping. This is horrible. He just wanted to test how far he could go. And what people say is that he never raised his voice. Never aggressive, just cool, calm, collective, authoritative. And that's that. Yes, I said authoritative. You can drink if you want. I don't know. It's not perfect, but... um, And she was, uh, you know, yeah, crying the whole time. He hit and beat her. I mean, it it was awful. And all on camera. So the authorities are watching the tapes going, what the fuck is going on? There is no sound, you know? They're just, like, watching this. The receivers of the call um, would eventually finally catch on. And then they're the ones who reported the call. So, like, that, so suddenly it, like, hit them and, like, wait, I think it's a hoax, you know? But always too fucking late. Too fucking late. And then once it hit Walter, what he'd done, he starts running. But they arrest him. Um, And then the detective on the scene is named Buddy Stump, which... That's pretty crazy. <laughs> and the detective, you know, finally sits down to take the victim's statement. And he realizes he knows her. It's his neighbor. Oh, my and God. He, and he know, he's known her dad since they were kids. So he's he got activated. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to fucking get this motherfucker. I don't care if it's the last thing I do. So, you know, he starts doing uh, red, red rope on a map. There's a lot of red rope, safety pins. Not safety, push pins. You know, he starts grouping this and finding more and more. And he realized, again, like a decade of calls and they're all coming out of, well, he didn't find it right away. So they're all coming out of Panama City, baby. But at first we don't know. So basically like a supermarket payphone with an AT&T calling card is what is um, fueling these calls. And, you know, he found tons of them um, across everywhere. And they're like bad. So one in Georgia, the caller convinced a janitor to perform a cavity search on a 19-year-old cashier. And that was um, quoted to ABC News by The Sun. And then like a Burger King strip search of a 17-year-old employee in Fargo, Taco Bell in Phoenix, and on and on. And it's all young teens. And he would call in with like a vague like, or it would be payphones outside of the place. So he would see the people. But he would um, just be like, oh, yeah, we have a suspect. It's a young girl, brunette, like pretty vague. And there's always someone that kind of fit it. But it was... Always teen girls. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I was like, if it's across 30 states, does this guy go and so he can find the victims? Or does he just like, like you said, he just plays it vague? It's really hard. And the evidence is, there's no, it's really a tough case because it's clearly, so this is tough. But basically... It is a big monster case, and it's all on this one small town officer. And it's like, why is anyone not helping him? The FBI or other cities or organizations? Like, no one had his back. He's just like this Batman, this hillbilly <laughs> Batman, who has to take down this this 
this guy who, uh, who they can't trap. And so then four Wendy's in Massachusetts get hit. And um, there was another cop in Massachusetts and he's so mass. He's very boss and he's, he gets hot. He gets hopped up. He gets activated. And what's cool is like part of the evidence is someone star 69, which is kind of thrilling. And like that gave oh evidence. Oh my God. Star 69. <laughs> I know, but it's, it is, it's pretty, it's, it's wild. Okay. So then they figure out that it's prepaid calling cards like Robin Williams. And so it means that means it's an out of state person. And, and cause long distance phone calls are expensive and these are really long calls. So they're like, this is out of state people, prepaid calling cards. Um, but also the calling cards can't be tracked to an OG phone number. Um, but the Massachusetts man wouldn't stop pushing. And he's like, I, you know, I'm going to keep calling. I'm going to keep calling. And finally, this woman on the other line helps him, gets information, calls him back and says, listen, post 9-11, we can actually give you the OG number associated, but we just can't have the public knowing this information. So, so they get the info and they realize these calls for a decade are all coming out of Panama City. Panama City, Florida. Okay. To me, it's like, it sounds like nothing good happens in Panama City. I know. Right? Like, this is, I've never heard like amazing, amazing hero thing happened in Panama City, Florida. It, to me, it's just like neon and date rape. Like, I don't know. <laughs> no. If you're from Panama so, City, please message us and let us know what's good. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Maybe there is a manatee, you know, a sweet little yeah. manatee. So, um, yeah, supermarket payphones with AT&T calling cards. And then when they reach Panama City, they're like, yeah, we've actually heard of him. Thank you. So they pump it into overdrive and try to catch this motherfucker. And so they're like, yeah, we fucking know who this guy is. And it's an almost identical MO to like everywhere, even the name of like the fake cop. It's Officer Scott always. And this obviously became huge news and it was a giant case because this is ludicrous. Like who has ever heard of, like it is a wild story. Yeah. So there's, so, but they have, they still haven't found him. So the news hits that this is existing and then um, w- they have footage from Walmart and they finally see this motherfucker walking in and he's wearing a pant that like only cops have. So it's like braided on the side and obviously the cop realized the pant and was like, fuck, that pant is, this motherfucker's a cop. So they finally like, after a long chase, finally get him on the Walmart camera. They go to police departments and they're like, we don't know this motherfucker. That's not a cop pant. That's a correctional officer pant. And so then they start hitting up all the prisons in Florida and he's, um, yeah, and he's a prison guard for uh, the Corrections Corporation of America. And that is so. so fucked up. You're already in a position where you tell people what to do all the time, where you're like in control of people, but it's not enough for you. You have to like call and make sure people get assaulted. That is beyond fucked. Oh, wow. I haven't seen you like this. I just feel like it would be like if he was a a truck driver, I'd be like, okay, you're like a bored psycho. But that is like crazy. You already are a person. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're already in control of people and probably abusing your authority there as well. And now, oh my God. Okay, go on. Well, the thing is, he's a cop lover. He wanted to be a cop and he obviously failed. Like he went to the police academy and it did not work out for him. In his trailer, they found guns, police paraphernalia, training manuals. He volunteered as a deputy. Like he loved 
police. He was obsessed with police shit. Never good. Never good. You know, like your daughter, Rosie, Paw Patrol. Yeah. This is what happens. Yeah. She's, she, it's waning. It's waning. Trust me. She's excited for the new movie. It's coming out soon. But after that, I think she's really, she barely asks for it anymore. But the new movie obviously caught her eye. Yeah, I would see it. <laughs> so David Richard Stewart gets arrested June 30th, 2004. And he's playing coy. I don't know. I don't know. And then finally, when the Boston cops like the calls, he he starts to sweat. He shakes a little. And what the cop says that he said was, he asks, was anybody hurt? Duh. You fucking listened in. And then he said, thank God it's over. But then he pleads the fifth. He's not like a full ass. He's obviously like smart, you know, and he not smart enough to be a cop. So pretty dumb, but smart for dumb. I don't know. Um, so he was charged with impersonating a police officer and solicitation of sodomy. And then October 31st, 2006, it reads like a title card on SVU. It is Halloween. There are no spider webs anywhere. And it's a sad day because he is acquitted of all charges. What? He's acquitted of all charges from the case. The jury only deliberated an hour and 40 minutes. He was facing 15 years, which I think sounds fair, but the jury said there was a lack of evidence that he had placed the calls. The jurors got a lot of circumstantial evidence. It was a circumstantial case, but it just wasn't enough. There were no witnesses to identify him being on the payphones. There was no voice recordings. There was just like fuzzy photos of a man buying calling cards, and the calling cards were found in his home that were attached to other incidents in different states. So I wonder if like they weren't able to tie the other calls or what, but like if a calling card that was used to call the other stores were found in your house. I don't know how that's not enough evidence. Yeah. I also don't know also, how they deliberated. Also, is saying, thank God it's over, not like a, a type of confession? Right? That, yeah. Like, he hired an amazing defense attorney. I could tell you that much. This guy, yeah. He, he hired an amazing attorney, but... It's confusing. Yeah, that little confession, having the calling card in the home. I don't know, but... Um, ay, ay, since, ay. But since all this, the phone calls have stopped. No one... That's never happened ever again. Like, nothing has ever Fucked been reported. Up. So, um, so, like, nothing... You know, maybe something secret, but, like, nothing has happened since he got caught. And basically you know, the hotshot defense attorney is just like, you can't sexually assault someone over the phone in regards to the statute. So fucked up. You just up. can't. So, and that, you know, that's the defense attorney's like, well, when I got the case, I just knew it wasn't him because you can't sexually assault someone over the phone in regards to the statute. I did say it again. Nick's then, but Nick's, so this is the fiance. He pled guilty to sexual abuse and other crimes on February 2nd, 2006, and he's serving a five-year prison sentence. Summer, Summers entered an Alford plea later that month to a misdemeanor charge of unlawful imprisonment and was placed on probation. And I watched footage of her. You know, she's crying in court. She obviously feels pretty sickened by what she has done. I, I don't understand how he convinced this guy to get oral sex or to assault her, basically, like, in that way. I don't understand, like, what they're... Like, you, like, the reason for strip searching her, she might have the wallet, she might have put it up her butt, whatever. But, like, why would you be like, okay, now get her to suck your dick? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Ugh, horrible. Okay, go on. 
And what's also wild, but not because we've done this podcast for a while, is that like this was happening everywhere and nobody cared enough to do anything about it. Basically, like teenage girls from coast to coast were fucking assaulted at work, traumatized for life. In the doc, you talk to these women, they're never the same, you know, like their lives are forever changed. They were fucking assaulted as teens. And then that was that. No one looked for the call. No one figured it out. Some people got in trouble. I mean, there's over 70 cases. I obviously can't, like, go through all of them. But, like, no one cared enough. Like, I just understand where the FBI wasn't involved. Yeah. Or any sort of national organization. Like, this just seems so wild. And the fact that, like, I didn't even know these docs came out. I I just don't understand it. So... And good news, um, and this is reported by ABC, the October 2007 said that a jury in Bullitt County, Kentucky, awarded um, Luis Ogborn $5 million in punitive damages and $1.1 million in compensa- compensatory, compens- I don't know, damages and expenses. Did she get that and from then, McDonald's, you think? No, because, so that's another thing. Like, the McDonald's, obviously were it's hard to be liable for it. Yeah. And I guess in the ma- I guess in the manuals they claim I, all I saw was that McDonald's claims that in the manuals there are written things against scams and not to be scammed. But I just how do you prep for this? This has never happened in yeah. the history of anything. So like I don't believe it, but McDonald's can't be held liable at the end of the day. So I don't know if it but I don't Summers is are they rich? No. So maybe it was McDonald's. It wasn't said who gave the money. Yeah. But people tried to sue the, um, she was asking for 200 mil, but like it would be per place. It's really difficult. I guess with the courts, it was difficult. So, but there uh, was one case, it was a Hardee's employee named Alan, and he did the strip search of a young employee, and then it hit him while what was happening. And so he left, walked out when he realized it was a hoax. And like, Also, one of the cases, there was just like a bystander who's like, what the fuck's going on? The energy here is wrong. And the employees were like, something's happening in the office. And he like, fuck it, like a regular Samaritan busted into the office and saved one of the girls, got on the phone and was like, you're not like, got involved. And so like, there's just, there's probably so many fucking stories. I want to watch the other doc too. But so this one guy, Alan, it hit him what he had done. He went home and then he went back the next day. The cops were there waiting for him and he was charged with kidnapping and rape. Jesus. And so like his life fully changed. He was found not guilty. And it's like, I get it. He was listening to orders, but he did do it. But the the big piece of evidence was the girl kept being like, cover the camera, cover the camera. And he goes, absolutely not. We are not covering the camera. And so his defense attorney was like, you know, cr- criminals don't ask to be on camera. Right. But, you know, and he's crying and he's sorry, but it's also like, I don't have any friends anymore and people stopped wanting to be around me and I lost my family. And it's like, well, yeah. Wait, that this you is what assault. the Hardy's guy or Richard? Yeah, Stewart? Hardy's. Oh, okay. Hardy's. Richard Stewart's never said anything. He's been laying low. He's just like alive. Oh wow! He I thought maybe one of guilty. these. I thought maybe one of these docs would have gotten like to talk to him or something. But so yeah, he was sad and sorry, but it's also terrible what this Allen guy did. And even after all that, like. They didn't go for the call person. No justice for so many of these victims. So And fucked. if you want to know more information, Netflix, it's called Don't Pick Up the Phone. 
And then Peacock, it's pervert hunting the strip search caller. So I'm going to watch that one next. And I remember I, this you know, story I'm, in the news. I remember it. And like hearing, oh, it's like, it, it was like a prank to strip search somebody. I don't think I realized how far the crime went. I don't think I realized, I thought it was like a strip search only. But I remember this uh, when it came and out. And the, the age of the girls is also. Yeah. Yeah. It's never true. like, cause the guy was never like, oh, um, it's a, you know, tall guy that he stole the, the wallet. Go bring him into the back, you know, like, cause they, that would never work. They had to like use victims that they could control. Ugh, horrible. Yeah. And it was usually like small towns, you know, like religious people, author- like authority in small towns is more. You're really taught to like listen to everyone and they're your neighbors. So. And I, I feel like Munch kind of had a point too. Like when you work at a fast food place in a small town or whatever, it is like, yeah, she's the assistant manager. I got to listen to everything she said, you know, like I got to do it. So... Yeah, you can't you, try that in a in a Brooklyn McDonald's. Try yeah. that there. <laughs> I bet he was not calling around the boroughs. Um, um, wow. Yeah. And then, you know, Karen, the episode mentioned, and it was like the guy, you know, Mil- det- Detective Milgram or whatever. Um, so the Milgram experiment on obedience uh, to authority. And what's funny is I get this in the Stanford prison experiment constantly confused. Yeah, me too. Because both of them were ethical low points in research. <laughs> and so both of these, both the prison and this, uh, Milgram experiment changed, uh, like the APA style of what you can and can't do with subjects of testing and experiments. Um, they really fucked with people here. Okay, so basically, the Stanley Milgram is a social Stanley Milgram is a social psychologist who researched the effect of authority and obedience, and like why do people obey when they feel coerced? Um, and this was a 1961 Yale University study, and he concluded that people obey either out of fear or out of desire to appear cooperative, and even when they're acting against their own better judgment and desires. And so he recruited subjects from all various walks of life. You put an ad in a paper and you were paid $4 for one hour of your time. And over the next two years, hundreds of people showed up ready to be in the study. And the respondents were told the experiment was study the effects of punishment on learning ability. Um, But all the people thought that they had an equal chance to be a teacher or student, but it was rigged and everyone played a teacher. So every single person that walked in to be a subject was a teacher. And all the students, aka learners, were actors. So the learner was an actor and is a cohort, and I kind of love that word, of the experimenter. And the teachers were told to administer increasing um, levels of electric shock to the learner when they answered a question wrong. But in reality, the only electric shock that was delivered was one single 45-volt shock to the teachers. So they knew how it felt. So they knew what they were doing. And so each teacher got a little baby 45-volt shock. So they knew what was up and would understand what they're giving out. And the shock levels were labeled from 15 to 450 volts. And the actors, so at 75 volts, they would grunt. They would complain at 120, ask to leave at 150, plead with vigor, was is the words, then agonize screams at 285. And then they were supposed to act desperate, yell loudly, complain of heart pain. And then finally at 330 volts, the actor was um, instructed to go silent. Wow. 
65% of the participants continued to give wild doses of electric shock, even though in all the video footage, they didn't want to do it. It was all reluctant. Like they wanted to stop. They're like, the person made me do it. Um, you know, someone would say, the experiment requires that you continue. And someone's like, oh, I guess I have to. Um, some did back out early um, with like experimenters, like pushing them and urging them. And those, the experimenters were instructed to use force and different tools to also persuade people to do it. But some people backed out right away and was like, fuck you. But the majority, 65%, yeah. and these are like, were willing to progress to the maximum voltage level, even when they thought the, the learner was dead. <laughs> oh my God. Like there are people in this study who once they found out it wasn't real, were like, oh, I'm so glad he wasn't, he's not dead. But it's like you committed murder. And so the point of the, this whole thing is that the participants are seemingly good average people, not evil, but they obeyed only under coercion. And one dude was like, I have to do it. I have to do it when he was told he needed to. And um, people were shocking, screaming people. Um, and then finally they were debriefed. They were really relieved. And then there were groups of people out of that group. So the first group obeyed, but justified themselves. They're like, they gave up responsibility. It wasn't me. It was the experimenter. Then there were people that obeyed, but blamed themselves. So these are the people that felt terrible what, what they had done. They were very hard on themselves. And then perhaps they'll be more likely to challenge authority in the future. And then there's the the group that rebelled and they questioned authority of the experimenter and argued there was a greater ethical imperative calling for the protection of the students over the needs of the experiment. But these these results can never be retested or recreated because of the ethical um, fucked upness of this study. Yeah. Um, so now the rules are like, you, you know, people have to know what they're getting into. You can't cause harm. And so... You know, with decades of time, there's people that question it. There's new opinions about it, whatever. But at the end of the day, the findings can never be retested. This will stand alone. Right. Oh, my God. Scary. You know what this reminded me of? Um, I wrote on this the show. Stanford prison experiment? Yes, the Stanford no, prison what? experiment. But also, I wrote on this show called Magic for Humans that was like uh, this magician guy's show on Netflix. And I was in a writer's room with all magicians. And they were like telling me so many interesting things about like how they, they were telling me how a lot of like mentalists um, can get people to do hypnotism and stuff that they'll bring people people into a room, basically like a casting call. Like the, pe the people don't know why they're there. And they'll have one person in the room who will just start like doing things. Like they'll, they'll, the, a bell will go off and that person will stand up and then the bell will go off and that person will stand, will sit down. And after like a while, other people start following and those are the people they eliminate. They're like these, or no, those are the people they keep. If you don't follow those rules, if you're like, I'm not going to stand up just because a bell is ringing, they kick you out because you're not open to suggestion. Like you're not coercible as, as much as other people. And that's how they find people to um, hypnotize on like television shows and stuff. They find people that are going to be the ones to follow like what someone else is doing. Because, like, it seems like they're just picking somebody out of a crowd. But when it's a crowd full of coercible people, it's interesting. Just reminded me of that. Yeah. It is, like, 
what would you do? I know. And I always like to think I'd be like, I'm not going to do, I would never do that. But it's like, maybe I don't, I mean, in the, in the moment, I don't know if the experimenter is like, it's fine. It's fine. Keep going. I might be like, I, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't think I'd go up to dead. Well, <laughs> it's this thing of like, when I just stand in line for the bathroom and I want, like, I don't want to be a sheep. Right. So I'll be like, did you even check the door? Because to me, nothing is worse than when no one checks the door and you're just waiting in line and then you open it and you're like, fuck all of you. Um, <laughs> but then if you're someone that thinks you're, like, then you go jingle the door and someone is in there and the person did check and then you're just, like, humiliated. <laughs> you're, like, an impatient loser. So it's, yeah. like, it's tough to... I don't know. Live life. Um, listen. <laughs> thank you for thank you for looking at all of that uh, up all that information. That was very interesting. I knew some of that story, but not all the details. And yeah, we'll just dive right into our postmortem because we don't have a guest today. Okay, so obviously, this was one of our best episodes. Can I say it? <laughs> Yeah. It was an incredible episode. Robin Williams, obviously, we did a full <laughs> memoriam to him up top. <laughs> but the crime is so fucked. And I talked to my sister's friend who's a lawyer, and it's just like, it's so messed up that these people had no justice. Because, like, obviously, the managers, because it's like, I don't want the managers to fully serve kidnapping terms, like 25 to life. But yeah, for them something. to fully serve no time is also fucked up. But if you say they're at fault a little, then they're fully at fault. Like, I get all of that. But it, they did abuse these people. But then to have the kingpin of it all get nothing. Get nothing. It's and so insane. Even worse, thinking about it more and more, and like, ex like the, the fact that there was no inter... Like, no national or no FBI to get involved. Like, no, like, just that the cops were like, I guess that's that. Like, no one even tried to connect who the call was. Nothing. Yeah. Like, all dozens of victims with absolutely no justice, which is nothing new. It's just so upsetting. Yeah. And the woman in the documentary just being like, you know, you're assaulted. Your life changes. And some people, it is forever, cannot get what is it, back to normal? Is that even a thing? Like, it's just so yeah. heartbreaking that they get no and justice. And like, if somebody, if somebody like bullied somebody into committing a crime, if somebody was like, just do it, just do it, just do it, like, they would still get time. So I don't really get why somebody call, calling up and posing as somebody, like, you're still not exercising right and wrong. Like, I don't really get why these people didn't get any punishment, you know? Because, they, like, they don't even care about these women. They don't care. Yeah. yeah. You know, the only reason... I mean, I think the detective that, like, that we met that I talked about, like, you know, it was his neighbor's daughter. And so he knew her her whole life. But if not, would he have gotten involved? Yeah. And not to bring... You know what I just realized? Below Deck Down Under did not have a reunion. Oh. Bravo didn't yeah. want to talk about it. Yeah. They're keeping and their Kate, hands off that. And Kate Chastain was just on Watch What Happens Live. And they were playing like, what would you do as a chief suit? Did this person do a good job? Didn't even bring it up. Like, that's the, that's where Bravo does fail me. They really like, they don't stand up mm -hmm. until it's way too late. Yeah. Like, I just don't feel they're ever really ahead of the trend of like speaking out against anything. Very true. Which is upsetting. The opposite of Mariska Hargitay. Also, shout out. 
I don't even remember what town we were in, what happened, but we did get gifted two fearless, fearless necklaces. Not not official, but from uh, like a store. They were based off of, they were based on a true story. They were based... I just don't want you to think people are showing up with $700 gifts that, you know, that's not necessary. Yes. We do not expect anything um, at all. And also a shout out in Raleigh to the two uh, listeners that showed up dressed as, was it Rollins and Melinda? And Melinda, yes. Yeah. Mortal oh enemies. God. Mortal enemies, Melinda and Rollins. But it was, their costumes were they so cool. They looked so cute. There was a clipboard. There was a glove. I mean, they really like went for it in a and way that I appreciate it. Come to our shows dressed up. No one will even look at you sideways. It's October. They'll assume you're going to a Halloween party. Come to our shows dressed up. We would love it. I love Halloween. We're going to have fun. Wait, I just saw something. Some Dynasty's doing a Death Becomes Her showing. Ooh. I know. I love that. Now a warning. <laughs> oh my God. I love Death Becomes Her so much. Yeah, for those of you who are into Halloween but don't love, like, gory or horror or actual, like, scary, Death Becomes Her is, like, spooky but comedy in a way that you would love. So we recommend that. And it's Goldie Hawn, Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, Isabella Rossellini. You can't get... I mean, they don't make movies like this anymore. They simply don't. So you have to go watch it. Um, I own it on DVD. I own it on DVD. I purchased, Jared got it for me a couple years ago because he's like, you need this. I was like, wait, let's do, um, let's do a, what's it called? When you put it on the screen. Projector night. Yeah, let's do projector night. Yeah, we totally can. We totally should. I wonder if I'm going to get trick or treaters this year. I always get a few, but not a ton. Um, All right. Um, let's get into our What Would Sister Peg Do, our weekly segment where we, you know, direct you guys to um, a documentary, a blog post, an organization, something to give you more info about what we talked about this week. And we thought this week it would be best to just have you go to the docu-series that Lisa mentioned in her research. Don't pick up the phone. It's on Netflix if you want more information about these heinous crimes and this miscarriage of justice, really. Uh, the documentary follows the investigation into the series of hoax phone calls that were, quote-unquote, allegedly perpetrated by David Richard Stewart, wouldn't want this prince of a man to sue us for saying that he actually committed any crimes. Um, so if you want more info on that disturbing case, check out the doc and um, uh, that will be posted in our stories when this episode releases as well as saved forever in our WWSPD highlight. Thank you so much for that. And next week, another A episode, Appearances. Season four, episode 19, Get With It. We're obsessed with all of you. I hope to meet you at one of our live shows and tell a friend, done, done. Or not. That made no sense, but have a great (laughs) night. (laughs) That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedupppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien, and our associate producer, Christina Chamberlain. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun-dun! 
Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.